Well, folks, if you have a, a Bible with you or a phone or a device, would you turn to uh, Luke, uh, the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1. Um, if you're using the church Bibles, it's on page 1026 uh, or, or thereabouts. Luke chapter 1. And we're reading from verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble and he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Amen. We know this to be true. There are some certain telltale signs that we see um, that tells us that we're beginning to get serious about Christmas. We've started to be able to ignore the tins of sweets in Tesco, the Roses and Quality Street, because they're out far too early now. They're out before Halloween. Um, so we can see those and ignore them. We can ignore home bargains selling Christmas lights because, again, they're, they're being sold before Halloween. We can see those in the shelves and not panic too, too much. We used to take people putting their Christmas trees up seriously, um, but I don't know what's happening. People are putting their Christmas trees up in November, the beginning of November. Um, so we can see Christmas trees now and, and, and not panic too much. I think it's whenever we hear Mariah Carey on, on the radio, in the car, or we walk into a shop and we hear her tell us all she wants for Christmas, or Shane McGowan begins to slur to us about a, a drunk tank on Christmas Eve, and that's when we start to get serious. That's, I was going to say that's when we panic, but that's when women begin to panic that it's nearly Christmas. The men, the men don't panic too much. And next Sunday is, is, is Advent Sunday. It feels, it feels early. And in churches, we're going to probably, I don't know what Marty has planned to do over Christmas, but in, in White House, we're, we're going to revisit the Christmas narratives as we tend to do every year. We, we, we get them out again and we ask, the Lord for a, a fresh, a fresh look at th those events, and and when we turn to the Gospel of Luke, we might be forgiven for, for for starting to read through Luke and go, "Oh right, this is a musical," because people burst into song at the events that are happening. Have you ever noticed that the first couple of chapters uh, of Luke, it, it, the narrative is, is punctuated by song. A young Mary sings. 
we call it the Magnificat. A man uh, sings called Zechariah. We call it Zechariah's Benedictus. The angels sing to the shepherds. We call that the, the greater doxology. And then Simeon, the priest, sings a temple song. The first couple of chapters in Luke are, are punctuated by, by people bursting into song at, at these things that are happening. I think the most famous of these songs is actually the one that Mary sings, the, the, the passage that we, we just read in Luke 1. And, and if, if you have a, a Church of Ireland or Church of England background or, or, or a Roman Catholic background, then you'll know this very well. It's used very often in church liturgy and, 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 and church, church services. We're going to have a, a look at it tonight. Um, and I'm going to share with you some thoughts and some questions that... I had to ask of myself as I, as I worked through it. The, the context of this song is, is a pregnant Mary visiting her cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant and a bit further along than her. Um, we read that Mary greets Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth hears her voice, the child in Elizabeth's womb, we know to be John the Baptist, Leaps for joy. Which, which makes the first person to recognize Jesus for who he was, an unborn child. So as a side note, maybe we should be careful that we don't underestimate our children. Because they often grasp the mysteries of God long before we do. The, the, the context of this song is that the gift of the Holy Spirit to Elizabeth that day uh, was, was some understanding of the mysteries of what was going on here. In verse 41 of that passage, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and Elizabeth um, gives this proclamation of understanding that leads to, to praise. She says, Mary, you are blessed. The fruit of your womb is blessed. And I am blessed because the mother of my Lord has come to visit me. And Elizabeth and, and, and this unborn child, they understand just how profound this visit is that before them, somehow, growing, is the incarnation of God. And that Mary, this, this young vulnerable teenager that stands before them is somehow the mother of the savior of the world. Again, as, a, as another side note, it strikes me here that there's something very special about um, the godliness of an older generation being shared with a younger one. And what a privilege that Mary owned in having someone like Elizabeth to whom she can go, who will listen to her with godly ears and understand her with a godly mindset and then speak to her with a godly tongue. What a privilege that is. It's maybe something that we could seek out for ourselves. We call them spiritual or church mentors and, and you should seek one out for yourself or you should offer to be one for, for somebody else. And it seems that in, in this chain of events and this sort of um, understanding of what's going on causes Mary to be moved in her soul. 
Uh, and it's as if the, with the encouragement of Elizabeth, she enters into her own understanding and comprehension. Faith and understanding are rarely instantaneous. Even in the occasions when we might call conversion instantaneous, faith grows slowly. And our understanding of what God has done and is doing can be gradual. And we can see the movement of Mary's understanding in, in, the, in the, the previous verses. She, she, she moves from complete confusion in, in verse 34. She asks, how can all this be? And that confusion quickly becomes faithful acceptance when she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. We don't need to fully understand what God is doing to be obedient to what he says. Her faithful acceptance evolves and becomes what we have read in the Magnificat from verse 46, which is, which is a realization of the reality of God and an outpouring of thanksgiving and worship. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So what has Mary realized that has caused this outpouring of worship? Well, I'm going to suggest that Mary realizes at this point Everything that she has ever been taught and everything that she has been brought up to believe within her community of faith is true. And I suggest that because the Magnificat, when we look at it, is simply a collection of biblical truths about God made up of snippets from the Psalms, from Old Testament poetry and Old Testament prayers. And what Mary is doing is taking these things that are, that are subconsciously already there and she is declaring them as experientially true and applicable to her. My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is not a mental assent to religious knowledge. This is a heartfelt joy that has overtaken her heart, her mind, and her will, and her emotions. And there's a huge difference between us learning our catechisms, if, if you learned catechisms, um, and being able to say, God is holy. And there's a difference between that and knowing in your heart, God is holy. And feeling in your spirit the very holiness of God because that changes you. And there's a difference in being able to say God is love. The Bible says God is love. And knowing in your heart the love of God. And feeling in your spirit that you're the object of that, that love because that changes you. And, and in the Magnificat, God has not just interested Mary's intellect. Or, or, or appeal to her sense of religious duty, but God, the real and the true God to Mary, has moved her in the very depths 
of her being that everything that she has ever been taught and thought and led to believe about God up to that point. All those Jewish traditions and stories about previous generations passed down to her as a child. All the synagogue lessons, all the singing of the Psalms, all the memorizations of the, of the Torah, all the lessons of watching godly people like, like Elizabeth living out her life with a genuine faith. All the things that we promise, by the way, when we baptize children. And for every child that comes through those doors, all that knowledge that we seek to impart to them. In Mary, it comes together in orchestra. It goes off like a firework and bursts into this glorious display of worship, the Magnificat, the medley of biblical truths about God made up of Psalms and Old Testament prayers and poetry that Mary declares as true and applicable to her. My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, why is she singing that? Well, God is holy and God is mighty and God is powerful and active, she sings in, in this. He's the one who saves and he has been through all the generations, promises to do so in this generation and the generations to come. But if you have it in front of you, just look a bit closer. She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name, verse 48, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. I used to work in a large IT company. And we were told when we worked there that this, this company has an open door policy. And what that means is that every office has a metaphorical open door. There's nobody in, in the company who is unapproachable. If you need to speak to somebody, you don't need to stand on ceremony. You don't need to, to, to make an appointment. You can literally go and wrap their door, and if they've got five minutes, you can talk to them. Nobody's unapproachable. Now, in reality, that kind of was true of my direct manager. But the really important people in the company... They had offices four floors up. And they were only ever in meetings that I was never invited to. And you certainly couldn't have imagined yourself getting the lift up four floors, wrapping their door, and having a chat with them about something that was on your mind. You barely would say hello to them in the lift. And woven into their importance and their gravitas within the company was how far removed they were from me and how isolated they were from me, how unapproachable they were from me. And the Bible tells us that God is holy. He's mighty. He's awesome in power. He is the greatest, the most awesome, the most holy, the most powerful, the most mighty person that we are both able and unable to comprehend. And that might make God feel far away. It might make God feel isolated from us, but in the Magnificat, God's greatness is revealed further 
by his intimacy with us. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. I mean, of all the women in the world, through all the time of history to carry the darling of heaven in her womb. It wasn't a queen. It wasn't a powerful ruler or the wife of a powerful ruler. It wasn't the wife of a high priest or a religious dignitary. It was the uneducated, poor, insignificant to the world, seemingly vulnerable, teenager who had no power and no voice in her society, yet of whom God was mindful. <laughs> Mary, who, have, who may have been little and of no importance to the eyes of the world, was valuable in the eyes of the one who spoke the world into existence. I remind you of the words from Psalm 8 that we, we, we read and how incredulous the author appears when he says, when I consider the heavens, when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Who are human beings that you care for them? That's something for us to consider tonight. That as much as we can worship God for his his grandeur. The one who put stars in their place and set the planets in their orbit. The one who has moved throughout all of history and caused thrones to rise and fall. Lord Almighty, the ruler of heaven and earth and everything in them is mindful of you. He's mindful of you. <laughs> He's mindful of, of me. You're, you, you, you're on his mind tonight. And you're of importance to him. You are of significance to the God of heaven. But Mary also tells us in, 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 this, in this song that she sings that it's not because he's overly impressed with our displays of power or our achievements of might, or our stores of self-sufficiency. Look again at what Mary says, that God has performed mighty deeds. He scatters those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, and he's sent the rich away empty. God is not impressed by our intellect, our power, our wealth, or our achievement. And Mary's song is not a song of self-exaltation. This is not a song of self-elevation. This is not a song that shines the spotlight on her because it's a song of humility. She sings, God is mindful of the humble state of your servant. And then she sings about being someone whose soul rejoices in the provision of a savior, verse 47. She sings about being someone whose soul rejoices in the provision of mercy. Verse 50. About someone who needs lifted up. Verse 52. Someone who is hungry for the things of God, the good things. Verse 53. 
and someone who rejoices in the fulfillment of God's promises. Verse 55. Mary sings that God is great and he is concerned and mindful of those who are not. The greatness of God does not make you insignificant. The greatness of God includes a mindfulness for you. And so, to conclude, I'm going to ask two questions. Whenever I ask congregations questions, I always worry that they're too pointed and that the congregation feel that I'm interrogating them. Um, So let me just say that these questions are questions that I have asked myself this week, questions the text demanded of me. They're applicable to me, and I'll ask them in the hope that they're applicable to you. Has the knowledge of God traveled from your head to your heart? Has the faith of your parents at baptism become yours? Yours to live out? Is this real to you? Has the knowledge of God made you better at winning arguments or sounding holy or religious? Has it made you better at judging others who don't know as much as you? Or has the knowledge of God made you better at serving him, loving him, living for him? Has the knowledge of God traveled from your head to your heart? And then the second question I asked myself was, does your knowledge of God make your soul sing? The Lord God of heaven and earth and everything in them is mindful of me. Does that make my soul sing? The songs that we sang tonight, the songs that you might have sung this morning, did you sing them with your souls? May God Make that so for us. Let me pray. Father, would you bless to us your word tonight? Would you perform a work in our souls by your spirit? a work that makes our souls glorify the Lord and our spirit rejoice in God our Savior. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.